welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the Coalition's Managing Editor, and today we'll imagine a day without water. Providing clean and safe water isn't free. It takes people and it takes working infrastructure to deliver it equitably across the country and to your town. A subdivision in southwest Colorado doesn't have infrastructure to deliver water to its more than 2,000 homes. There's not public water everywhere you go. A Freedom to Read forum was held recently in Garfield County, Colorado, in response to efforts to restrict access to several books in the local library. Thank you for continuing to build a catalog that is representative of people who may not see themselves represented in books. And a librarian talks about the rise in efforts to ban books. It tends to be 50 people show up at a meeting, they complain about 80 books that they want to immediately pull, and they demand the immediate firing of the library director, the disbanding of the board, and the defunding of the library. From Rocky Mountain Community Radio, it's the Regional Roundup. There are more than 2 million people in the United States who lack access to clean water on a daily basis. That's according to 2019 research by the US Water Alliance and Dig Deep, a water rights-driven organisation. It's statistics like that that led the US Water Alliance to create an annual day of recognition focused on water inequalities across the nation. Imagine a day without water took place on October 19th. KGNU's Report for America Corps member Jackie Sedley talked to Christy Horowski, director of the Value of Water campaign for the U.S. Water Alliance. What is Imagine a Day Without Water? Yeah, Imagine a Day Without Water is a national day of action that brings us together to celebrate the value of water and to acknowledge that it is essential to daily life, uh, to public safety, to a healthy environment, and to a thriving economy. You know, water is more than just a resource. It's a lifeline for us, but so often it is taken for granted. So consider for just a moment if you woke up this morning and turned on the shower, but no water came out. Or if you swung by your local coffee shop, but they turned you away because they had no water with which to brew your coffee. So these are lighthearted examples, but really elevating awareness around water is key to understanding that providing clean and safe water isn't free. It takes people and it takes working infrastructure to deliver it equitably across the country and to your tap. What sparked the creation of this campaign? First and foremost, for more than 2 million Americans, people in this country, living a day without water is a harsh reality. It's not something to be imagined. And it's communities of color and low income communities that are most likely to lack adequate indoor plumbing or access to safe and clean drinking water. So that's one. But also because water needs investment now more than ever. Just in this past year alone, dozens of communities across the country have suffered devastating impacts to their water systems as the result of extreme weather events, which we've seen now for a handful of years. It's flooding and droughts and most recently saltwater intrusion up the Mississippi River. Um, But also, many communities across the country have water pipes that are more than 100 years old. And there's a huge gap between the price of providing clean water today, and that's been increasing over the past several years, and the funding that's available. 
And in fact, the water infrastructure gap, we call it, is $81 billion as of 2019. And that is making water unaffordable for more and more people. What do you perceive as the average American's relationship with water? Do you think that folks take their access for granted? Or do you feel like more folks have a lack of access than I may know? I think as a country, we take water for granted every day. You know, most people are willing to pay more for their cable or their internet or their phone bill than they are willing to pay for the provision of clean water. And it is because we're taking it for granted. I think that the state of water in our country is fragile. And in other parts of the world, it has become a crisis. And we're at risk of having it become a crisis here if we don't stop taking water for granted and start paying attention to it and start investing in it. And also from an American perspective, one of the first water catastrophes in the states that comes to my mind from the past decade or so was in Flint, Michigan, right back in 2014, when their municipal drinking water supply was contaminated with lead and other pollutants. But needless to say, that isn't the only water-related crisis across the U.S. What kind of inequalities do we see when it comes to access to water and water sanitation services? That's a great question. And you're right. There are different issues in different regions of the country. In some regions of the country, scarcity is a real issue, like in the Colorado River Basin, you know, where actual supply of water is something that is impacting particularly indigenous communities and others in that region. And so when these different issues pop up in different areas of the country, whether it is needing to replace lead service lines or whether it is needing to think outside the box and starting to Um, conserve water so that everyone can have access to it, those issues should be top of mind for us and should be issues that are addressed at every level, federal, state, regional, local, community, individual. And what kind of work is being done at those federal, regional, state levels, even maybe in Colorado, if you know, to address these growing inequalities and lack of access? Yeah, I would like to acknowledge the recent level of federal investment in water. So through the bipartisan infrastructure law, the federal government invested $50 billion toward water infrastructure for programs like replacement of lead service lines and replacement of aging water mains so that communities can do a better job providing water to everybody. That was a fantastic step in the right direction. But a drop in the bucket, excuse the pun, toward closing that huge infrastructure gap. So it is incumbent upon us to continue advocating for municipal and governmental support for water for our communities. Christy Horowski, director of the Value of Water campaign for the U.S. Water Alliance, speaking with Jackie Sedley of KGNU about the Imagine a Day Without Water campaign, which took place on October 19th. Well, water scarcity is a reality for many in the arid Rocky Mountain West. Aspen Springs, a subdivision in Pagosa Springs in southwest Colorado, is by definition one of the largest subdivisions in the United States. It's also one of the most rural. It has over 2,000 homes and it continues to grow, but it lacks the infrastructure to provide domestic water utilities to its residents. Christy Bodie with Rocky Mountain PBS spent time with Jordan and Callie Kaler, who live with their young family in Aspen Springs, to find out what that means. 
I grew up right in the middle of town, so it was always just convenient. I didn't know too much about it. I didn't think people like hauled their own water for what they needed, but obviously now you get into it, you're like, well, this is a part of life. Most of my life was hauling water. So for me, it was always something ingrained in us as little kids, not to waste water, not to use too much, not to let the water run. There's not public water everywhere you go. And that sometimes you, you know, there's different situations for different folks, especially in Southwest Colorado. Most people in Aspen Springs that I know of haul water just like us. We could have looked at places in town and it probably would have cost a little bit more as far as monthly payments, rent and everything. But we have, you know, more land than we would have probably had in town. And that's been great for our family. The biggest concern was that it was a fixer upper house, but also at first we didn't have a truck to haul water. So we had to, <laughs> that was one thing we definitely had to change. So the water process is open in the cistern. I'm checking to see if we're low or not. I'll throw the tank in the back and I go to town every single day anyway. So on the way back, I'll just get a load of water and throw it in there and three, four, five loads will fill it right up. And then the cistern is hooked up to obviously all the plumbing. And we are pretty fortunate for how close we are to the water filling stations. Generally, I would say 20 minutes each load, somewhere between six to eight times a month in order just to keep the cistern full enough for us to not have to worry about running out. Hauling water does make you think about water usage though for sure and kind of be smart about what you have and it's you know give and take for you know what you get and yeah you trade you trade pros and cons for sure i would say being the person who is in the house using the majority of the water in the house i don't know if i'd prefer it i think it's something that for me especially with kids can be difficult because you are doing extra loads of laundry, running the dishwasher. I'm bathing the kids most days. It's just something that, again, just kind of sits in the back of your mind, um, no matter what you're doing. Even if I know there's plenty of water in the tank and he just went and did a few loads, just don't want to have to also put even more burden on him of like, hey, we're running low again. Can you get more water? So we have a low water bill would say average 20 to $25 a month. I know that people in town often are spending quite a bit more than that. Once you start adding in gas and the time it takes to go and get the water, come back and everything. So obviously it's a little bit more than that when you start adding everything together, but cheaper than I think living in town. It definitely has been a dry summer for us in Pagosa. I would love to have, you know, a lot of more green grass and be able to water it and even let my kids play in the sprinkler outside, you know, but that's just something that really for us right now isn't feasible. It's not really a smart option in terms of conserving water. Even our river is starting to get really low. Kinley knows not to waste water. She knows that we don't leave water running unnecessarily. And she's she's been pretty smart about learning and, and taking that knowledge in. 
She would probably love to take two baths a day if we let her. We don't do that. <laughs> if my kids were to have to continue hauling water in the future, that doesn't concern me. But again, I think it would just be a mindset for them, would just be something that will stick with them for the rest of their life, just like it has with me. You can see Christy Bodie's video report and photos of the Kaler family in Pagosa Springs in southwestern Colorado and read more about the reality of hauling water at rmpbs.org. You're listening to the Regional Roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio. Garfield County Libraries in Western Colorado recently hosted a Freedom to Read forum, which was in part a response to a recent petition filed by a local resident asking the library to remove or restrict access to some books, in particular Japanese manga graphic novels. KDNK's Haddison Rensbury brings us this report. The forum began with a talk given by Garfield County Public Library District Executive Director Jamie LaRue. LaRue is known for his stance on the importance of freedom of speech and intellectual freedom in the scope of libraries and publishing, and has written several books on the subject, including the recent release On Censorship, A Public Librarian Examines Cancel Culture in the U.S., We gather materials from everywhere. We're not going to try to restrict access because of somebody's national background. We do that in order to help our residents investigate and understand the world around them. Libraries are supposed to resist censorship, no matter which side it comes from. At one point in the evening, Lars Stringham of Carbondale stepped forward with this statement. As a parent, I understand how terrifying the world can be, especially as I am expected to release my children into it one day. Like it or not, we live in a world full of violence, obscenity, racism, injustice, and yes, sex. You can't walk out your front door, turn on a TV, or get online without being bombarded with any or all of it. We have kids contemplating suicide because the books that represent and validate their lives are being removed from shelves in public institutions. We can't talk about sex in school to the point that many of our young boys are learning about sex from internet porn with little or no guidance. You can't teach about racism or slavery because it makes people feel uncomfortable, thereby ensuring the racial divide. We are doing such a disservice to our children and ourselves as parents if we attempt to hide these uncomfortable truths. One person who spoke out in favor of further securing the books was Tila Forehand from Silt. At this forum, I'd like to address a consistent fallacy inferred and currently enforced by the Garfield County Public Library District that freedom of speech means we have an obligation to expose minors to harmful content in the name of giving them access to all speech or forms of communication. This is patently untrue and it is in fact illegal to do. Prevailing law directs that some speech is unprotected by the Constitution. The district should secure this kind of content in an adult-only area and ensure through its database any library card granted to a minor cannot check out this obscene material. Soon after came another Silt resident, Caleb Robinson. We're not here to ban books. If I was here to ban books or something like that, I I guess I'd have a little different argument. I'm against pedophilia, child pornography, and sexual exploitation of children. That's why I'm here. Um, I'm all about freedom. I don't think freedom allows you to abuse children. We're here to get rid of child pornography and the grooming of children and predatory 
books, regardless whether they're called graphic or not, I'm not against freedom, but I'm not for allowing this material to be accessible to anyone. Several speakers throughout the evening from both sides cited guides and articles written by the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund and similar organizations, as well as a variety of media laws and court cases pertaining to libraries or freedom of speech. On multiple occasions, testimony from the speakers was laced with strong emotions. In some cases, that was derision. In others, it was fear. One speaker who became somewhat emotional over the situation as a whole was Allison Weiser from Rifle. I want to thank the Garfield County Public Library District for continuing to, to support and keep kids safe. I don't think anybody over here wants children to be exposed to things before they're ready. Um, but I also want to thank you for continuing to build a catalog that is representative of people who may not see themselves represented in um, public media, in books. Several Garfield County Library board members were present at the forum to hear the community's feedback. You can find more coverage of the recent Freedom to Read forum at kdnk.org. As we heard in that report, the executive director of Garfield County Libraries, Jamie LaRue, opened the Freedom to Read forum, speaking about the rise in book bans and the role of libraries across the country. LaRue writes about all of this in his new book, on censorship, a public librarian examines cancel culture in the U.S. LaRue spoke with KVNF's Taya J on the pen and the sword. Let's start out by talking about what you believe the role of the public library is, specifically about the value of the public library in rural communities. Uh, who, who was it who said the Stuart Brand, I think, in the Whole Earth Catalog? He said libraries are what communities do for smart kids. And so I think if you've got you just, you know, strike up an interest for something and it could be paleontology or geology or butterflies or, you know, uh, American history or science fiction, you go to the library because this is this unlocks the, the door to a whole universe of research and study. And if you're in a rural area uh, like around here, we have two bookstores for six communities. And so it can be very difficult to go and find the book that you might be interested in. The library lets you pull yourself up by your intellectual bootstraps and study anything that's going on around you. And so I think that's one thing is just access for smart people so we can take the world to to their library. And I think the other one is community connections. One of the things we learned after COVID, particularly in rural areas, people have such a deep thirst for connection. So where do you find that connection? Well, you go to where interesting people hang out and have programs and conversations and talk about books. Jamie, I want to talk about you for a minute and where your initial interest in in librarianship stems from. Well, to be honest, um, I think I was six years old and I was out on a baseball field when I saw this shimmering on the horizon that resolved itself into a bookmobile. And I just walked off the field, just mesmerized by this bookmobile, stepped in, and there was Mrs. Johnson, the stereotypical librarian who looked at me like I was the man she'd been waiting for all of her life. And she said, you know, well, what can I help you with? And I said, well, I read a lot of comic books. I was probably the only six-year-old on my block who could spell invulnerable. And one of the things that always stuck with me was the speed of light. And I said to this librarian, how did they figure out that light had a speed? I thought it was like on or off, and then how did they figure out how fast it was? And then I kind of hunkered down thinking, okay, here it comes. Here's adults saying, why do you want to know such a stupid thing? 
And her eyes lit up all a twinkle. And she said, how fascinating. Let's find out. And I was like, libraries had me at hello. It's like any place that you walk in that uh, has such an immediate, courteous response to the inquiry, the curiosity of a young child. What a wonderful institution. I said, I, so I have always felt most comfortable in my life at libraries. Flash forward many years, you were the director of the Douglas County Public Library District for, for many, many years. Let's talk a little bit about that. How was that? Well, um, it was uh, the fastest growing county in the United States from 1990 through 2000. And I think when I got there, it had 65,000 people. When I left, it had 350,000. So just as huge growth and the growth has issues, but growth is a lot more fun than decline. So I had a chance to build seven libraries while I was there, go from 24 staff to 350, and it was a blast. It was a wonderful thing. But, or and, while I was there, I also received more challenges by which I made attempts to restrict or remove library resources than any other library I'd ever talked to. In fact, in my 24 years, I had 250 challenges. And, uh, and so one of the things I learned is, you know, I went through a period of trying to figure out what was causing all this, and at one point, back when I only had 150, I spread them on. I said, what is going on here? What's the common denominator? And the common denominator suddenly jumped out at me and said, 99% of the challenges I received fell into one of two categories. They came from parents with children between the ages of four and six, or parents with children between the ages of 14 and 16. And I thought, oh, I see what's going on here. It wasn't religious right versus secular left or political, it was about life transitions in the life of your child. And so anybody who's had kids know that four to six is the end of infancy and you're losing control of the little bubble of parental influence. The kids are going off to preschool or play dates or daycare centers and they're picking up things from all around them, them and the parents freak out. They don't want their baby to grow up. And between the ages of 14 and 16, it's the end of childhood and the beginning of young adulthood. And once again, I think the parents freak out because they don't want that, uh, that innocence to disappear. They want to hold their children tighter, just as the children want to wander off into wilder arms. And so that really gave me like this uh, psychological insight to what was happening there. It was love and loss and grief. And it helped me be a lot more compassionate when I was dealing with the, the parents who were dealing with these transitions. I think there was like this big social change where we went from the latchkey kids, you know, that just were nobody looked after and they ran around by themselves to a generation of very protected children. And we now talk about Velcro parents and you know, I start off as helicopter parents and got even tighter woven into their children's lives. And, uh, and I think we're still in the midst of that. So that's one of the four reasons I think that people challenge library materials. Can we talk about why the conversation of censorship is particularly important to be having right now? I mean, it's always been important, but why is it important right now in this climate that is dominant here in the U.S.? There was a huge shift that happened right around 2021. And I think if I had to put my finger on the moment that things shifted, it would have been a letter by Representative Matt Krause in Texas. And uh, he was a state uh, representative. And he wrote a letter to the Texas Department of Education demanding to know which schools had any of the books attached in a spreadsheet, 850 titles, mostly books about LGBTQ folks and people of color. And I wanted to know how much uh, 
how many of those books existed in, in which each school district and how much tax how much taxpayer money they had spent to purchase them and very quickly you know this chilling effect about lgbtq and people of color many school libraries in fact uh, as the case was the case in san antonio stepped in and immediately removed 400 books just deleted them and in the case of uh, Lano, Texas, they had 12 LGTQ books that they decided they would just pull. Somebody filed a court case against them and they added them back and then said, well, maybe we should just close the library. So there was this shift of like legislative pressure being placed on these public institutions. After that, we saw in Florida, the Don't Say Gay bill, the anti-woke bill, all this uh, ersatz concern about uh, critical race theory which is taught in no public school in America, and the attempt to pass legislation that not only criminalized these books, mischaracterizing them usually as sexy, but often really just about LGBTQ or people of color, and then began to threaten to criminalize the people who provided access to the books. And so we've now seen a number of states put out things kind of based on the anti-abortion bill that was passed in Texas. And the idea is that let's say you don't like a book at your school library and you complain about it. If the school librarian or the principal doesn't immediately remove it, you can sue the librarian for $10,000. And it could be in some states uh, a misdemeanor for the librarian or a felony for the librarian. And in one state it was like, and you have to pay that $10,000 yourself. You can't get it from a GoFundMe campaign. And so that's a huge shift where again, now we have the formal actions of the government to suppress a political viewpoint. Uh, the way that's played out in schools and public libraries is that instead of a sedate conversation between a upset patron and a, a library director, it tends to be 50 people show up at a meeting, they complain about 80 books that they want immediately pulled. They're very uh, confrontative and argumentative and they demand the immediate firing of the library director, the disbanding of the board and the defunding of the library. And so that kind of anti-institutionalist anger is new. And one of the things that, it's not new in America, but it's new in my lifetime. And uh, I think one of the reasons I wrote this book about uncensorship is there is an echo to what was happening around the world in 1938. And this wonderful book that I cite in my book called The True Believer by Eric Hoffer, written in 1951, was all about how did it happen that World War II took over the world, that America, that the world under Hitler, under Mussolini, under Stalin, lurched into authoritarianism, began to identify and seek to murder minorities, both ethnic and religious. And what he, as he described this kind of change that happened around the world in culture, it's hard not to see those same changes happening now in America. The phrase that stays with me, and I probably use it too many times, but it just really captured my imagination. Hoffer said that change begins with people destroying the institutions that bring them together, that have these larger values, things like newspapers, like the media, like bookstores, like libraries. And that uh, it begins with, he, he calls them men of words. And so these are the folks who begin to carry this idea about all oh, the libraries are pushing pornography in middle school children. And that narrative is then followed by men of action. So men of words to change the popular opinion, men of action to put the laws in place to squelch and quiet those minority voices or the people that speak up against these new narratives. And that's where we are. 
Jamie LaRue, Executive Director of Garfield County Public Libraries, speaking about his new book, On Censorship, A Public Librarian Examines Cancel Culture in the US. He was speaking with Taya Jay on KVNF's The Pen and the Sword. Find out more at kvnf.org. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to KGNU's Jackie Sedley, Christy Bodie with Rocky Mountain PBS, Haddison Rensbury with KDNK and Taya Jay with KVNF for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.